A New World for Kościuszko and Niemcewicz by Michał Karski. The year is 1793. Revolution is in the air in Europe, whereas France has overthrown the monarchy. Poland has just been partitioned for the second time by its powerful neighbours. The country is in the grip of reactionary forces. Not only is the old order still in place, but Prussian and Russian influence continue to dominate the nation. Many Polish reformers particularly those who had proclaimed the revolutionary constitution of 1791, now find themselves scattered outside the borders of their homeland. Among them is Julian Ursyn Niemcewicz, poet, playwright and former deputy to the Polish parliament. Late in the year, we find him in the beautiful city of Florence. As he sits reading by lamplight one evening, he receives an unexpected visit. At the door is Jelski. What are you doing here, old friend? I've come for you and for Kosciuszko. We are preparing for a revolution. Soon, Niemcewicz is visited by Tadeusz Kosciuszko himself, the man who will become famous as the leader of the insurrection of 1794. At this moment in time, he is still only known for his campaigns in the American Revolution and for his role in the brief war in defence of the Polish constitution. He is travelling through Italy, sounding out fellow exiles, but he cautions against starting anything without being sure of success. Niemcewicz does not follow either Jelski or Kosciuszko at this point. As we know from the histories of this period, he is to join the rebels in Poland after the outbreak of the uprising in the following year. But now, seeming more like a pious pilgrim than a fervent revolutionary, he decides to travel to Rome in order to be there for Holy Week. In his memoirs, published posthumously in the middle of the 19th century, he lists various compatriots he meets in Rome, such as Prince Stanisław Poniatowski, who had been living there for a few years, Vice-Chancellor Hreptowicz, Pani Radziszewska, Adam Walewski and his wife, Valentis Sobolewski, Stasio Grabowski and many others. He writes also of the acquaintance his Polish companions had made with Prince Augustus Frederick, the future Duke of Sussex, who was a son of George III of England. During my stay in Rome, the Poles made the acquaintance of the son of the English king, Prince Augustus of Sussex. He used to invite us to dinner frequently. Therefore we, feeling obliged on a point of honour, clubbed together and gave him a banquet, where, among Italian and French dishes, there were also Polish ones, including zrazy. The prince liked this speciality very much, but instead of zrazy, he called the dish esterhase, which was the cause of much laughter. Amid much drinking and jollity, the conversation turns to the sorry state of the home country. There is talk of the weakness of King Stanisław August when faced with the pressure from Catherine of Russia and eventually someone suggests dethroning the Polish king and replacing him with a young Augustus Frederick. The carousing finishes with a toast to the English prince. Long live, live August, August, August IV, IV, King, king of, of Poland. Poland! 
Much has been written about the insurrection of 1794. We read about noble egalitarian ideals. We read about spectacular successes, such as the stunning victory of the rebels at Ratswavice, where the Khopi, the peasant volunteers, armed with their scythes, famously capture the Russian artillery. We read idealistic documents and proclamations, the high-minded manifesto of Poanyets, idealistic slogans of freedom, unity, and independence. The nation takes up arms against the foreign oppressors, or, at any rate, a large part of the nation takes up arms against the foreign oppressors. Some are more reticent than others. Freedom, unity, independence. <laughs> Here's something from the great leader of the insurrection, Nacelny Kosciuszko, as he styles himself. Have you read it, Bishop? I have given it my consideration count. It seems to be a rather idealistic document, reflecting the aspirations of the underprivileged, I'd venture to say. Idealistic, Bishop? Subversive, more like. It's all very well being idealistic and egalitarian, but these revolutionaries will finish by bringing everyone down to the lowest common denominator. Nest pas? Well, Count, one hopes there will not be the excesses of revolutionary France. One has already seen regrettable instances of rough justice. Zalecam przeto komisjom porządkowym. Commissions of public order. Does that sound familiar? And here. He's stirring up the peasants, promising them government protection. This whole revolutionary movement resembles nothing more than some kind of contagion. First America, then France, now this. Mm, yeah, well, let us hope that Providence provides us with a fair and just solution, Count. Of course, Bishop, that goes without saying. But tell me. What is the position of the king in all this? You have been to Warsaw recently. Surely he cannot be lending his support to these, these troublemakers, to Kościuszko, to Niemcewicz, Pototsky, Kowontai. And Kowontai is one of yours, a man of a cloth. Can he be in league with the anti-clerical Jacobins? I will not comment about Kowontai, other than to say that I do not believe he belongs to our shrinking band of Jesuits. As for the king, I believe he has prudently decided to wait and see. Given the events in France and the fate of their monarchy, I rather think he would be wise not to declare himself against the revolutionaries for the moment. Despite all his enlightened achievements over the years, the people are inclined to remember his sympathy for the pro-Russian faction when he sided with the Tatkovica Confederation. But Kosciuszko himself, although an egalitarian, is not a rabid anti-monarchist. He makes sure the king remains safe, but also makes sure that he is sidelined and unable to influence events one way or the other. The uprising continues. There are some encouraging words from revolutionary France, but no material help. Inevitably, faced with superior numbers and the combined forces of Prussia and Imperial Russia, the insurrectionists start to suffer defeats. The Prussians take Krakow, reverse follows reverse, until at the fateful battle of Machovice, Kosciuszko himself is badly wounded and taken prisoner by General Fersen's Russian army. He is followed into captivity by Nemtsevich, who has been his aide throughout the uprising, and also by thousands of Polish soldiers. The insurrection is soon brutally crushed, and the country is carved up yet again, this time in a third and final partition. The treaty signed by Russia, Prussia and Austria on the 24th of October 1795 snuffed out with a simple stroke of a pen the existence of an ancient and civilised European nation, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. What had once been a sizeable power at the heart of the continent, with a long and honourable tradition of cultural diversity and religious tolerance, 
was erased from the map of Europe. Some observers of a time thought that Poland, having for many years been degenerating into a faction-ridden, ineffectual shadow of its own glorious past, and having become the virtual plaything of its powerful neighbours because of its political inertia and internal discords, had now simply gone the way of many ancient states and that its history had inevitably run its course. With the country finally partitioned out of existence, the final blow came with a forced abdication of King Stanisław August Poniatowski. At this point, our histories of Poland and Europe usually shift the focus away from Kościuszko and the rebels. It was not long after that insurrection, after all, that the word was coming through from the West that Jan Henryk Dombrowski, who had himself fought in 1794, was now assembling a Polish force to fight alongside the armies of the French Republic. There is suddenly hope for the revival of a free Poland again, hope for the defeat of the partitioning powers by the Republican Army of France. While attention was turned to France, and in particular the young General Bonaparte and his seemingly unstoppable onward march, Kostyushko and his companions in the defeated rebel army continued to languish in Catherine's prisons. Niemcewicz, who was himself to become a hugely influential writer in later years, describes his time in captivity in St. Petersburg's Peter and Paul Fortress, known as the Russian Bastille, in another of his many memoirs. This one appeared in Edinburgh in 1844 under the title Notes of My Captivity in Russia in a translation by Alexander Lasky. The hours dragged slowly on and appeared centuries. The nights especially were cruel. The want of exercise, an unwholesome atmosphere and, above all, continual mental agitation deprived me almost constantly of sleep. Stretched upon my bed, I counted sadly the hours and quarters struck by the fortress clock. This music became intolerable to me. I would have a thousand times preferred silence. One night, when abandoned to my own thoughts, I was sitting up longer than usual. I heard from afar sounds of wind instruments. I supposed at first that it was a mere illusion, but by degrees those sounds seemed to approach and to become more distinct. I heard, at last, the serenade from Don Juan, the opera which was so often performed at Warsaw. Then I heard again the sounds at a distance, then they died away entirely, and everything fell again into silence. It may be imagined what recollections this music awoke, what sensations it excited in a prisoner who had scarcely heard a human voice for two years. Everything changed in November 1796, with the unexpected death of the 67-year-old Empress Catherine. Her son Paul, who had never seen eye to eye with his mother, now proceeded to assert his new authority. He began by freeing Kościuszko and all the Polish prisoners. Nevertheless, this act of generosity was not entirely unconditional. Paul I would only agree to free the thousands of Polish soldiers if Kościuszko and the other rebel leaders swore an oath of loyalty to the Russian Emperor. Kościuszko himself, his country no longer existing, decided to travel to America, his second homeland. The new nation of the United States, in gratitude for his outstanding service during the War of Independence, had granted him citizenship. He travelled with a small entourage, which included Niemcewicz and young Lieutenant Libyszewski. Since Kościuszko was partially paralysed after the wounds he had received at Maciejowice, 
Lubyshevsky had offered to carry him, where necessary, from one carriage to another throughout the journey. Laden with gifts from the Tsar and his wife, they travelled through the snows of Finland and Sweden, encountering, as Nimtsevich notes in his diaries, kindness and hospitality along the way. Kostyushko's fame travels before him, so that by the time the party reaches Stockholm and then the port city of Gothenburg, he is a celebrity, not only a noble freedom fighter, but also the martyred hero of a lost cause. Precisely the kind of personality to appeal to the sensibilities of the emerging romanticism of the West. The gateway to the New World was traditionally through English ports such as Bristol. So, at the beginning of May 1797, Kostyushko, Nientsevich and their companions board a vessel bound for England. How will they be received in the country against whose army Kostyushko had fought in the American War? A toast, everybody, a toast. To our wonderful and generous hostess, Georgiana. <laughs> Call yourself a word, Sir and what about beautiful? To our wonderful, generous and beautiful hostess, Georgiana. To our wonderful, generous, and beautiful hostess... And radiant. Will you let me get a word in, James? To our wonderful, generous, and beautiful, and radiant hostess, Georgiana. Georgiana! Georgiana. Dear friends, we've toasted the king, we've toasted our dear Duchess of Devonshire, and now I propose we raise our glasses yet again. This time to a person whose name you may have heard of recently... A very personification of heroism, of steadfastness, oh, of ideas. Oh, get on with it, Sheridan. This isn't Drury Lane, you know. And this isn't the bear pit of Westminster either, James. I'll thank you for not in- keep interrupting I'll me. And thank you to get to the point, Richard Brinsley. James, let him finish. Don't be a pest. Oh, my apologies, Your Grace. I didn't know you liked the sound of his voice as much as he does himself. Drink your wine and let the poor fellow speak. You heard the Duchess, James. My friend, another bottle for the noble lord over here. Thank you. You were saying, Richard, about to propose a toast to someone, were you not? Do we know him? I presume you were referring to a man. Indeed, Your Grace. There may well come a day when the Duchess of Devonshire will be described as heroic, but for the moment you must content yourselves with the epithets wonderful and generous and beautiful... Richard, it's my turn to say get on with it. Dear friends, raise your glasses, if you will, to the hero of all Europe, a freedom fighter extraordinaire who is here today on these very shores, in this very city... Friends, I give you Thaddeus Kozieski. Oh, Sheridan, what are you thinking, man? Don't you know it's Thaddeus Kozieski? Both completely wrong. It's General Thaddeus Kozieski. In Devonshire House, you have the last word, Your Grace. A toast to General Thaddeus Kozieski. General Thaddeus Kozieski. Kozieski, you say? Wasn't he the fellow who fought against us in the American War? That's right, Charles. Fought alongside Washington. Fortified West Point. It's said also that he was instrumental in the crucial American victory at Saratoga. Saratoga, you say? Aye, Saratoga. Well, I cannot think of him as an enemy. Speaking personally, I was always opposed to the American War. One of the worst decisions of the King and Lord North, in my opinion. And Georgiana, my dear, you almost got it right. It's Thaddeus Kosciusko. Ah, well, let's do it properly this time. To Thaddeus Kosciusko. To Thaddeus Kosciusko. In no other country are the love of freedom, respect for her defenders, in a word, all the noble sensibilities more widespread and more alive than in England. It was hardly surprising, therefore, that the arrival of General Kosciusko announced throughout London caused the greatest impression and attracted the most eminent persons in the country to come and see him. 
another excerpt from Yemtsevich's memoir. Leicester Square in London was a rather modest residential area in the 18th century, but a small hotel in the southeastern corner of the square, which had formerly been the house of the painter Hogarth, was already playing host to an international celebrity. It was there that the general and his small entourage stayed for two weeks. They had arrived at the end of May after a difficult voyage and were surprised to find the English not only well disposed towards them, but positively enthusiastic about Kosciuszko. The New London Gazette and the Gentleman's Magazine hailed his arrival. Visitors thronged to see the revolutionary hero. He was especially popular among members of the Whig Party, who were opposed to the government of William Pitt. Politicians such as Charles James Fox, the leader of His Majesty's opposition, the playwright and parliamentarian Richard Brinsley Sheridan, and notable celebrities of the day, such as the beautiful and clever society lady and poet Georgiana, Duchess of Devonshire, were among many who came to pay their respects. The Russian ambassador, Count Vorontsov, visited often and proved very helpful, arranging for Kostyushko to be examined by the best doctors in London. There were also visits from many others, including Rufus King, the American minister in London, as well as the painters Benjamin West and Richard Cosway. Kostyushko and his companions then spent another two weeks in Bristol, and when the party finally sailed out into the Atlantic on the Adriana on the 19th of June, they were seen off by crowds of people cheering and waving farewell. The Atlantic crossing, which took two months, is described in detail in Niemtsevich's diaries. Conditions were fairly primitive and the voyage was not without its hazards. Niemtsevich writes how they were woken up one night, well past midnight, to see the splendid sight of a sizable fleet of ships in the distance, each one with its own illumination. The travellers stand on deck, marvelling at the spectacle of white sails and flickering lights. The entertainment does not last long. One of the merchantmen suddenly turns towards the Adriana and heads straight for them. Captain Lee uses a trombomorska, an old nautical loudhailer, to warn the oncoming ship, but to no avail. In vain they try to take evasive action, but it is too late. Lines, sails and masts get entangled, and there is an almighty noise of the two hulls colliding. The situation remains dangerous for almost an hour until the sailors manage to cut the lines free so that the ships are disentangled. They lose a mast, many ropes and sails, but are otherwise unharmed. It turns out that the steersman of the errant ship from the merchant fleet sailing from Jamaica to London had fallen into a drunken sleep at the helm and hence the near catastrophe. The other ships of the fleet make sure the Adriana is safe before all ships continue on their separate ways. When they finally arrive in America, Kosciuszko is given a hero's welcome. This is how the London Observer reported it at the time. Kosciuszko, whose gallantry has rendered his name immortal, arrived from England on the 19th of August at Philadelphia and was welcomed with loud and general acclamations. On his landing, he received a federal salute from the fort and having got into his carriage, the horses were taken from it and he was drawn in triumph by the populace. Kosciuszko himself was not destined to spend the rest of his days in peaceful retirement in the United States. He eventually returned to Europe, living first in France and then finally living out the rest of his days in Switzerland. Although he continued to campaign for the cause of Polish freedom, he was never to see his homeland again. Julian Ursyn Niemcewicz, on the other hand, did return to Poland where he became one of the leading lights of the Księstwo Warszawskie, the Duchy of Warsaw. 
which had been set up under the aegis of Napoleon Bonaparte. Later, he was again active in Congress Poland. Before his return to Europe, however, he spent several years in the United States, where he married Mrs. Keane, the widow of one of Kosciuszko's friends, and where he travelled extensively, meeting the luminaries of the day, including President John Adams, Vice President Thomas Jefferson, and was even invited to stay with former President George Washington at his Mount Vernon home. The prolific diarist leaves an interesting and detailed account of life in America at the end of the 18th and the turn of a new century. Apart from his memoirs, there is also another account of his travels, Podróży po Ameryce, published in English with the title Under Their Vine and Fig Tree. The last word belongs to the prolific diarist himself. Here he is, newly arrived in America. Having been at sea for 81 days, it was good to be back on dry land. Nevertheless, I had been left with such a strong impression of the monotony of that vast body of water that on waking up and opening my eyes in the morning, I thought for many minutes that I was still looking at the ocean's flatness. But I experienced an even more painful feeling, an unbearable pain in my big toe, a redness and swelling which began to irritate me unbearably. Dr. Roach, first among the medics of Philadelphia and an old friend of Kosciuszko's, had luckily been eager to visit him and called in to see me. He told me that the pain was nothing other than gout, caused by the long ocean voyage, lack of movement, salted food and contaminated water. This inconvenience occurred at the very time when Kosciuszko's condition and his affairs, the need to find a first home for him, and finally also my curiosity about visiting the city, indeed the country so new to me, required my being able to walk. I took up some crutches, therefore, and supported on these, I hobbled slowly to the banker and took care of various other of Kosciuszko's necessary affairs. In five days, the fresh air and the fresh, if modest, diet gave me back my health. And so we leave the Polish revolutionaries to enjoy the relative tranquillity of the new world of the United States. They could not have foreseen that it would take well over a hundred years before their homeland was to regain its freedom. In A New World for Kosciuszko and Niemcewicz, written by Michał Karski, Alex Karski was Sheridan, Michał Karski was Niemcewicz, Julian Mazowiecki was the Count, Tom Wachtel was the Bishop, and the narrator was Iwana Makowska. Other parts were played by members of the cast. Of the many biographies of Kosciuszko which exist, two in particular are very useful for an English-speaking readership. Thaddeus Kosciuszko, The Purest Son of Liberty, by James S. Pula, focuses on his time fighting in the War of Independence. And the most recent study, by Alex Storozinski, head of the American Kosciuszko Foundation, entitled The Peasant Prince, Thaddeus Kosciuszko and the Age of Revolution, is possibly the most comprehensive biography to date. As for Niemcewicz, a good guide to his American years is Pana Luliana Przypadki Życia by Isabella Rusinova, published in Warsaw in 1999. For a very irreverent but hugely entertaining take on his early years in particular, there is Karol Zbyszewski's enormously popular Niemcewicz od przodu i tyłu, Niemcewicz front and back, published in 1939. 
Produkcja audio Radio Orła LTD 2011.